Thank you, John, and hello to everybody. If you've been journeying with us, you know that we are in our third installment in this little book called Habakkuk. And as we left Habakkuk last week, we probably left a guy who looked extremely lonely because he declares in chapter 2, verse 1, I'm going to stand at my watch. I'm going to be atop the rampart. So you sort of see this guy in the watchtower. He's watching... Uh, for two things, he's watching for the marauding Babylonians who are going to come and they're going to wreak some terrible havoc upon the people of Judah. But he's also standing and watching to see what the Lord God is going to answer him about his complaints. He's going to ask God to instruct. So he's there, eyes open, to see a tremendous evil and suffering coming. He's there, ears open, with an expectation that God will explain the events that are unfolding before him. So Habakkuk, in one sense, is really lonely as he's standing on top of the ramparts at his watch. But for a lonely guy, man, he's surrounded by a crowd because we all want to lean in with him. Anyone who's ever lived wants to lean in with him because what's Habakkuk's question? His question is, how does a God who's good enough to know better And powerful enough to do better, put up with evil and suffering. So literally he might be standing alone, but figuratively, I reckon he's gathered a crowd. And I reckon we're standing there with him, are we not? Wanting to know, how does a God who is good enough to know better and powerful enough to do better, put up with evil and suffering? Now, Habakkuk doesn't stand there in a cynical kind of way. Now, we actually called it the H position last week. This is a position of hope. He stands there knowing that his God is good, knowing that his God is powerful, yet staring down the barrel of evil. He stands there hopeful, not wanting to ignore the problem at all. No, he wants to interrogate reality. He wants to see what's going to happen. But he's hopeful. He's standing there watching and waiting to see God work and to listen for God to give an answer to why he's working the way he is working. And today, as we come to this installment, we get God's answer. Sometimes we give people answers that they don't expect and they respond with things like, well, what kind of an answer is that? God might have anticipated that someone might respond with, well, what kind of an answer is that? So before he gives his answer, he explains what kind of an answer is that. Here is what God's answer is going to look like from verses 2 to 3. God explains, the answer I'm going to give, my answer is for everyone. This is God kind of saying to his prophet Habakkuk, tweet this. He says, write it down on a tablet. This isn't just a secret me and you moment. Write it down on a tablet so a herald can run with it. It's for you, Habakkuk. It's for Judah, Habakkuk. It's actually for Babylon as well, Habakkuk. And it's for fig tree and all the nations of the world for all time. This is an answer for everyone. It's an everyone kind of answer. Next, he explains my answer is an intentional answer. This isn't a mistake. This isn't God shrugging his shoulders and going... Yeah, stuff happens, hey? No, God says uh, in verse 3 that this answer, this thing that's going to happen, this revelation, this thing revealed is for an appointed time. It's something that God's got planned. It's intentional. It's not a mistake. God was not on annual leave. He was not asleep. This is an intentional answer. 
the next part of the answer, he says, my answer, the one I'm going to give you is definitive. I'm not going to change my mind later. He says, verse 3, it's for the appointed time and it speaks of the end. Not just the last thing, but the end of the matter. I'm going to give you an answer. If you're tweeting this, Habakkuk, close the comments. We're not discussing this. This is going to be my answer that's uh, for all people. Tweet it. This is my answer that is intentional. I wasn't hacked. This is my answer that is definitive. There'll be no need for comment. This is what it is. And finally, verse 3, he says, my answer will be true. To quote God in Habakkuk, it will not prove false. So before we get to God's actual answer, and you might say, what kind of an answer is that? The kind of answer God says he's giving is one that's for everyone. It's one that is intentional. It is one that is definitive. And it is one that is true. So what is God's answer to the question, how does a God good enough to know better and powerful enough to do better put up with evil and suffering? Verses 4 to 6, God begins his answer. He does it like this. He says, look, understand this. There are two kinds, and only two, two kinds of people in this world. There's the puffed up one, and there's the righteous one. Now, the puffed up one, he goes to lengths to explain. He said, look, the puffed up one is inflated, independent, and insatiable. Actually, he's insatiable as the grave. Sometimes you drive past graveyards and they're just, just huge. And guess what? They're not going out of business anytime soon. They will continue to grow. And death doesn't say, oh, I've had my fill for today. No, death continues to march on. Since life began, there's been death and so people keep dying. The illustration here is that there's one who's kind of puffed up, independent, inflated and insatiable and he just keeps going. Because uh, you know what? When you're puffed up... All you've got is all you've got. All you are is all you are. There's, there's nothing else. It's, it's, it's your internal structure that makes you strong. You're kind of like a balloon. Why do I say inflate? Because when you're puffed up, you take your space by what you can inflate with. Your strength comes from within. And so you're inflated. You're independent. And you can imagine why you'd be insatiable because with just a little bit more I'll be a little bit more with just a little bit more I'll be a little bit more and so God describes that there are two kinds of people the puffed up one who's inflated, independent and insatiable all they are is all they are and they always want more now we need to be a little bit careful here when Habakkuk was originally written in the Hebrew language, it was left a little bit vague. And our, our translators, who have done a wonderful job, the NIV team, have given us more than we even needed. Uh, in verse 4, we read, See, the enemy is puffed up. From what we know and from what other translators have done in their other, other versions, they haven't told us about the enemy. Because that word's not quite there. Well, it's not there. What we're told is, he is puffed up. And it's kind of vague. And I think we'll do well to stick with the original and some of the alternate translations and just leave this vague at this point. And I'll show you why later. Now, it's not a mistake. 
It's true, the enemy is puffed up. They've supplied us with good information. But we will be well served to be a little bit patient at this point and just leave it vague. There are two kinds of people, the righteous one and the puffed up one. Puffed up one, inflated, independent, insatiable. All they are is all they are. And what's the other thing we find out through verses uh, 4 onwards to the end of the passage is that they're coming to an end. And God describes this to Habakkuk and today he says they're coming to the end with a series of five woes. What is a woe? Well, I've been translating myself this week and thought I'm going to think of Oh, with what I call the CJS translation. That's the CJ Smith translation. He's one of our fantastic interns. He's helping us this morning. CJ, when something is bad news and it's going to come to a bad end, we'll say, oofed. You feel it, right? It's a good translation. So I'm going to move from woes to oofts because I think it speaks in our time. Five oofts from verse 6 to 19. Now, as I examined the oofts, I thought, oh, I'm going to get the congregation really squirming here. I'm going to find each ooft. I'm going to show you how you're just like that ooft. And say, ooft one, that's you. Ooft one, that's you. Ooft three, that's you. And we're all going to come to this great moment of repentance and be wonderful. Only as I examined the oofts, I saw great similarity between them and I just didn't know how to attack you. Shame. But what I did see, whilst they are similar, they are escalating. There's almost progressive puff going on. In every oof, they are oofted because they are trying to inflate. They are trying to gain. But what you see is a progression of oofed. And so as I read this passage, I see verse 6. Oofed to the taker. The one who takes goods, gets them, not always in the most ethical and wonderful ways. Ooft. Ooft to the consolidator. The one who moves beyond the puff of taking goods in verse 9 and consolidates. He builds a house, a place to store all the goods and to be more secure. Ooft to the developer. Verse 12, this one has taken goods. Now he's gone further. He's taken a house. He's built a house and now he builds a city. Do you see the puff progression? Ooft to the conquester. Verse 15, this is the one not satisfied with goods, not satisfied with the house, not satisfied with the city. Now he takes people. He claims people. Ooft. Ooft to the idolater, the maker of gods. There is one who is puffed up, inflated, independent, and insatiable. And they receive five oofts on a journey of puffing up, for they take goods, they build houses, they take cities, they take people, and now they make makers. How convenient when you build your God in your own image and beckon him to come to life. Amongst this puffing, of which I am running out, is warning. Because as the pressure rises, as the puff increases, 
the danger looms. And at each point for these puffed ones, God warns. You know, the people you ripped off, they might get a foothold and come back to get you. You're not as safe as you think you are. And he continues to warn them, continues to warn them, these puffed up ones. Yet he also describes another kind of people, only two kinds. The puffed up, inflated, independent and insatiable, and the righteous ones. Now the righteous one is quite different. The righteous one lives by faith. Where the puffed up one is inflated, the righteous one is supported. Where the puffed up one is independent, the righteous one is dependent. Where the puffed up one's strength is internal and all they've got is all they've got, the righteous one's strength is external. It's a help that comes to them. While the puffed up one will speak of their strong self-esteem, the righteous one will glory in God's esteem. For the puffed up one, all she has is all she has. But for the righteous one, all she has is all she is being given from a strength outside. The puffed up one is coming to their end and is in constant danger of everyone they defrauded coming back on them. The righteous one, we're told, will live. And as verse 20 rolls around, comes a definitive moment. Verse 20 reads, The Lord is in his holy temple. Now the Lord is present before you. Let all the earth be silent before him. Every puffed up one, everyone who has claimed, everyone who has built themselves up, well now the Lord stands before you and it's time to shut up before him. Your claims lie as nothing as God stands before you, supreme over you. Judge of all people, where is your strength now? Where is your pride? You can see why the NIV chose the enemy, because that is a warning for the Babylonians. But it's more than that. The question for us and for Habakkuk is, how does that explanation of those two kinds of people, how does that actually answer the question of if God is good enough to know better and powerful enough to do better, why does he put up with evil and suffering? Well, here's the answer. God's going to use the coming of these wild Babylonians in two ways. He's actually going to satisfy Habakkuk's call for justice and punishment. Because God is going to bring, and Habakkuk explains this in the previous chapter, chapter 1, God is bringing the Babylonians as his instrument of punishment upon the Judeans who are committing violence and violating one another and not living as God's people. So God shows that he is good enough and he is powerful enough to punish evil. It's what he's going to do. He's going to use the Babylonians to punish the evil of the Judeans. And as the story unfolds beyond Habakkuk and history unfolds, you'll see that the Babylonians too will have their day before God. They also will meet his instrument of punishment. So God shows he's very willing to punish evil. But here's the amazing bit of what God's doing right now. Whilst God will bring the Babylonians as an instrument of judgment, 
He's also going to bring these wild Babylonians as a mirror. He's going to bring them as a mirror. These people who make their own gods, these people who do violence, these people who consume the world before them, he brings them as a mirror before the people of Judah who also have been doing violence. He brings the Babylonians and he holds them up before the people of Judah and he says, do you see what you are becoming? Do you see that you might not be as successful as them, but you're just as distorted? Do you see that whilst you might be taking goods and houses, they've moved on to cities, people and whatever. You're on the same track. Can you stare into the mirror that is Babylon and see that this is how you are progressing to? And so now you see why it's good for us to leave verse 4 vague. Because the question is, who is the puffed up one? Well, certainly it's the enemy, the Babylonians. But God, who is slow to anger and abounding in love, doesn't just punish in a way that obliterates. He wants to hold up a mirror and say, Guys, see your trajectory. Turn around. The righteous will live by faith. Right now, you're the puffed up. See the mirror. God shows his goodness and his amazing power in doing that. Do you remember when we talked about what kind of an answer is that? God said this is an answer for everyone. You see, this isn't just an answer for the people of Judah. This is not just an answer for Habakkuk. This is an answer for us today as well. I think I might be wrong. I think it was C.S. Lewis who coined the term chronological arrogance, which is a way that we sometimes read the Bible. We've all done it, right? Where you read, you read Jesus' time and the disciples, they still don't get it. You're like, they're so dumb. How do they not get this? Sometimes you read an Old Testament passage and you see the people go and worship other gods again. You're like, how are you so evil? Why are you so bad? Why do you keep turning away? God showed himself to you and you forget. You forget. How could you forget? Moses has been up the mountain for like five seconds. You've built a calf already. How are you so dumb? It's called chronological arrogance. Another way to use it is to consider it as a mirror. As Judah had Babylon, we're really blessed to have Judah, Babylon, and every other mistake recorded in the pages of Scripture where we can also look and say, how'd they get like that? Because I'm warned there are two kinds of people. One is puffed up and one is righteous. And maybe I haven't been as successful as them, but maybe I'm just as distorted. Maybe I too count on strength that comes from within. Maybe I too am inflated and independent. And maybe I too need to make some changes. The question at this point is to ask, what can suffering do for us? You see, it's pretty clear that when evil happens, and evil is when someone acts outside of God's ordering of loves, and chooses to go a different way to God, that's evil. That always leads to suffering somewhere and for someone. So whilst evil will always lead to suffering, I want you to hear and hear well this morning that suffering is not always evil. Evil will lead to suffering 
But suffering is not evil. Hard? Man, hard is hard. But hard doesn't have to be bad. What does the Bible say? Well, Romans 5, written many years after Habakkuk, tells us that we glory also in suffering. What? We glory in suffering? Why would we do that? Well, because suffering leads to perseverance. That is the willingness to keep trying, keep going, be in the hope position. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And the hope doesn't disappoint. James chapter 1 tells us, consider it pure joy when you face all kinds of trials. James chapter 1 doesn't say, consider it easy, consider it fun, consider it no big deal. No, the trials are real. This is a guy who was thrown off a temple and when that didn't kill him, they stoned him to death. It's a guy who knows what it is to do it tough. Just consider it joy, pure joy. Why? Because these trials refine your faith and your faith is worth more than gold. Worth more than the pleasure of a life that has no suffering. Worth more than a rose garden. So what's God doing here? Well, as he explains that there are two kinds of people, here's the answer I think we all get, is that it's important for us to come to the end of ourself. And suffering is a way that God brings that about. It's hard for us, isn't it? We don't want to hear this kind of message. We don't want to hear that our good and powerful God would sometimes intend Not take a day off and it just happens and he gets back to work and goes, oh, I've got to tidy that up. No, not just use, but intend that sometimes we would suffer in soul-wrenching ways, in heartbreaking ways. We find that hard. Why would God do that? We are people who pride ourselves on independence, raising my child to be independent. Well, turn around. It's time to repent of that. We delight in independence God speaks of dependence. We rightly acknowledge and want to see empowerment in our time, but we make it this ultimate good. And so how we wrestle when the Bible calls us to things like submission, whether that be to God, the authorities, our leaders, husbands, one another, every earthly institution and creature, these are all the things you hear submission. Whoa, 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 whoa. That would mean I get less. That would mean I have to limit myself before another. It's good practice. We use words like proud when sometimes we should use grateful. And for us, humility is terrifying. Because humility feels like I'm getting smaller. But the truth is, when you're not inflated, when you're not insatiable... And when you're not independent, humility is not that scary because the strength comes from without and you are far more than you have and you can be. The strength is coming from without. So humility becomes not scary. Here's the thing. Sometimes, for a reason he knows and that I can't fully explain, our good and powerful God will humble us. He will. He will bring us to our knees. 
and it'll hurt so bad, and I don't need to explain that. He does it not because he hates us. He does it because he loves us and wants to see us endure. This answer is for everyone. This answer, God explained, is intentional. God's power and his goodness is not on trial in Habakkuk's time, and it's not on trial in ours. Just because it's hard doesn't make it bad. Oh, hard is hard. And we could spend time together all sharing the different suffering that we've all been through to make sure we qualify to speak about what suffering is like. But let's deal with what God has said at this point. Hard is hard, but hard is not necessarily bad. And God doesn't fall asleep. It's not that God was asleep on the hard day. No, God was very much awake. And I'm so glad he was very much awake on my hardest days because I know that he'll also be very much awake on the day that I'm counting on him to raise up my dead body to eternal life and resurrection. I need God awake at all times, like he says he is. God's power and his goodness is not on trial just because it's hard. Just because it limits us or even hurts us, do not think for a moment that God made a mistake or that God wasn't watching or that God's not acting. God's answer is definitive. He wants us to know this. He wants Habakkuk to know. He wants Judah to know. He wants Babylon to know. When I leave people puffed up, Though they feel safe, I've left them in a tremendously dangerous situation. When I leave people puffed up, they may feel strong, but they will perish. Independence is death. Faith is life. And God's good desire is that no one should perish, but that, will, that all will come to eternal life in Christ Jesus. It is why later in the Bible in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul is able to write God's promise that the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. God hasn't made a mistake. He's working hard, intentionally and definitively, to make sure our faith endures and that we inherit that wonderful eternal life with him. And finally, here's what God told us. My answer is true. It will not prove false. Well, let's test it, hey? Because Habakkuk in his time would have to wait. And we in our time as we endure suffering will feel we have to wait to see, okay, does this really work the way God said? Will the righteous live by faith? Because, gee, it looks good to be puffed up sometimes. It looks more secure. So let's test it. I'd say Jesus is a really great test case. Now, Jesus was a guy who would have been capable of significant puff up. Wish I could preach like that guy. Thousands, tens of thousands would come to hear him speak. Even his enemies were like, damn, that guy's smart. Man, you ask questions, you get in a riddle and you just have to go away and rethink your strategy. Wins every debate. Demons run from him. Sickness cannot prevail in his presence. This guy can do the lot. Everyone wants to hear him from paupers to kings. This is the guy who has the capacity to walk on water 
and still a storm. And so when they called out at him whilst he was on the cross, save yourself, come down off that. Like if he wanted to, surely that would have been about the easiest trick he did in his three years of public ministry. But he doesn't. His strength is not within. He's not puffed up. He's the righteous one who lives by faith. And so as God the Son, who had limited himself to a human body, suffocates, hanging on a cross, he calls out to his heavenly Father, in whom he places his faith, into your hands I commit my spirits. I hand my dying breath to you. And then he died, knowing that what God chose to do with his spirit, with his breath, would actually dictate his future. If God was not good and powerful, Jesus would be dead forever. Into your hands I commit my spirit. I depend, I trust, I'm not inflated. No, let the air go out of me and be in your hands, God. What does history record? On the third day, God returned his spirit to him. Romans chapter 1 tells us, raised in power by the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus lives. Jesus ascends and Jesus reigns today. The answer proves true. So how does this all answer Habakkuk's question? How does a good a God good enough to know better, powerful enough to do better, put up with evil and suffering? Here's how I understand God's answer. I don't put up with it. Indeed, at the cross, indeed in Habakkuk, you see, I'm willing to punish evil. And I intend suffering. I don't allow, I don't use, I intend in my sovereignty suffering for your good. Not your pleasure, but for your good. I have no intention of leaving you in the danger of being puffed up. I have no intention of leaving you as you are through hardship and even evil. I am calling you to trust and trust beyond yourself. I'm calling you to faith in me as your strength. For the righteous will live by faith. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this answer you have given Habakkuk and this answer you have given us. We thank you that it is an answer for all. We thank you that it is an answer that is intentional. We thank you that it is an answer that is definitive. And we thank you that in Jesus we know it is an answer that is true. Father God, we understand your truth and yet we still endure the hardship of our time. And so Lord, we want to lift up to you now all who have, all who are, and all who will endure soul-wrenching, heartbreaking suffering. Father God, we pray that indeed you would be their strength. Father God, we pray that in their trouble as they come to the end of themselves, that they would cry out to you. No faithfulness in you, 
know your strength, and ultimately know life. And so, Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that by his resurrection, we can see that trust in you is not misplaced, but lives to life, but brings life. And so, Lord God, deflate our balloons, end the puff. We repent of independence. We repent of being insatiable. We repent of being inflated. Instead, God, we ask that we might be supported. We ask that we might be dependent upon you. And we ask that rather than coming to a horrible end, we might live and live with you into eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.